Thank you for that prayer, Aaron. Thank you for leading us in that. That was beautiful. Please take out your scriptures as we go to the Word now. We'll be looking at uh, chapter 10 in the Gospel of Matthew. I also uh, was just marveling at, as you turn there, at, at how Aaron's prayer um, has weaves in and out of some of the themes that, uh, that I'm going to be speaking on today. It's just beautiful how the Spirit works. Please bow and pray for me and with me. Oh, Father God, uh, your word is weighty. Your challenges in this section of Scripture are tough. And they, our flesh wars against it. And so I pray, Spirit, that resides in each one of us, that you will soften us as we hear this, that you'll convict us, and that you'll send us out into the fields. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when Martin Luther, the great reformer, became convinced of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it propelled him out into the world. He began preaching and teaching and contending for the faith throughout all of Germany and beyond. A friend of his was equally convinced as Luther was. And the two men agreed that Luther would go out into the world and preach and teach and debate while his friend would stay alone in a monastery and pray for Luther. They made this kind of pact. Luther and his friend would get together from time to time and Luther would explain to him what was going on out there and all the opposition and difficulty that he was coming up against and the obstacles he faced. And his friend would promise as they departed each time that he would pray even more fervently for Luther. One night, Luther's friend had a dream that he saw a gigantic field that encompassed the whole earth but only one lone figure in the field. As he looked closer at that figure, he saw that that it was Martin Luther alone in the field. When he woke up, he immediately went to find Luther. When he found him, he told him that God had made clear to him through that, that dream that it was not enough simply to pray. He too must give himself to the work of spreading the gospel. He did not, did not stop him from praying any less, but he set aside his solitude and began to labor beside Luther with all the opposition that it included. Until this stage in Jesus' ministry, he's been laboring alone. If you look back in Matthew, you see that he was the one that was teaching. He was the one that was preaching. He was the one that was facing all the opposition. But that was never the pattern intended by God for gospel ministry. The fields are to be full of laborers swinging our scythes side by side, bringing in the harvest. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to show us here in chapter 10. I want us to look back first at verse 35 in chapter 9 going forward to get the whole context. 
there in verse 35 of chapter 9, God's word says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simeon, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no towns of the Sumerians, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. We'll stop our reading there for the moment. Typically, the Gospel of Matthew is viewed structurally as five books with a preamble and, and, a, um, and an epilogue. The preamble is typically chapters 1 and 2, and the first book is chapters 3 through 7, which encapsulates the, the Sermon on the Mount. Book 2 is chapters 8, 9, and 10, which we are in. Book 3 is 11 through 13, Book 4 is 14 through 18. Book 5 is 19 through 25. And the epilogue is 26, 27, and 28. That's how typically the Gospel of Matthew is structured. And in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus has just shown his disciples how to do ministry. Right? He's shown them what to do. Proclaiming the Gospel and healing. And now in chapter 10, he is sending them out. He's going to instruct them and send them out to do the same ministry he has just been doing. Jesus begins in chapter 9, verse 37, by telling his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the, but the laborers are few. Meaning there's more, more harvest, there's more work than workers, right? More spiritual harvest than laborers to bring in it, bring it in. 
And so he calls to his disciples and he says, disciples, pray. Pray for more laborers. We need more laborers to go out. This is the prayer of, of every pastor. We need more laborers. This is the prayer of Jesus here. We need more laborers to go out. People who will grab their scythe and go out into the fields and just start swinging. And what we see here is the answer to their prayer is them. Jesus asks them to pray, and the answer is them. And that's as true today as it was 2,000 years ago with Jesus. The answer to that prayer is us. Here at Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, we, we pray. Aaron just prayed. That, that more people would come to know Christ. We pray for our community, don't we? I mean, I hope you do. I hope in your prayers at home you're praying for the community you live in. That more people will come to Christ. And we would pray for our friends and our family. Those of you who have family who don't know Christ. I, I assume you're praying for them. Praying that they will come to know Christ. And many times. If not most times. If not all the time. The answer to that prayer is us. You're the answer to the prayer. The pattern is never to be like Luther and his friend. Never. I remember uh, years ago, I was talking to a, a friend of mine that I graduated seminary with, and he was called to a small church. And that church's numbers had been dwindling for years. And after some time there, there, there was a meeting, and the congregation was disappointed that they hadn't made more progress. And by that, they mean, and most churches mean, that they haven't grown in numbers, right? We haven't grown, Pastor, they were saying. And my friend challenged them regarding this. My friend asked them, have they been sharing their faith? What, what have they been doing with the people that has, God has brought into their lives for that purpose? And he told me that he remembers one person standing up and saying, but that's why we brought you here. That's the culture of many churches. That's, that's your job, Pastor. Maybe that's what the disciples were thinking after being with Jesus for a while. Oh, this is his job. We're just here to kind of to support, to be the cheerleaders maybe, to, to bolster him when he, when he gets down. It's the culture of many churches today. They truly want people to be saved. I don't, I don't think that they're lying. Churches truly want people to be saved and start coming to church. And they even pray for their salvation. I remember one prayer a couple years ago when uh, uh, Brother Noonan, Ed Noonan, prayed this prayer, I still remember. I hope I get your words right because they ring in my mind. He prayed one time, Lord, give this church the blessing of seeing conversions. It's a great prayer. And the answer to that prayer is us, brothers and sisters. That's not just going to magically happen. They're not going to walk into church and go, my goodness, what have I been missing all these years? 
the answer to that prayer is for us to faithfully swing our scythes. Just like it was for the twelve apostles. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 1. There, Jesus says, and he called to him the twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Skip down to verse 5. And these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. Jesus just doesn't call us to do this. He prepares us to do this, too. That's what this whole chapter is about. Preparing us to be out in the fields, swinging rhythmically those sighs. He sends them out with instructions on what to say. We'll look at that. How to say it. Where to go. What to anticipate. And these instructions are here to help and encourage and prepare us to go out into the field. But before we dive in, I think that we have to understand that in as we're reading this, there are some similarities and dissimilarities to what Jesus' ministry is in ours, to what the gospel, the, the apostles' ministry is in ours. In other words, there are things we can expect to be similar in our own experience, and there are things that as we read this, we have to know will not be the case in our ministry. Like miracles. In 10.1, it says Jesus gave them authority and power over unclean spirits and disease of all kinds of afflictions. In other words, he he was telling them, go out and do exactly what I did. Exactly what you saw in chapters 8 and 9, they're going to be able to do. In verse 8, he even instructs them to go and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. That's what these 12 men were going to be able to do. They were duplicating Jesus' ministry. And in that way, our calling is not like that. In this way, our calling is not like that. Because their calling, their ministry is different than ours in that their ministry was a foundational type of ministry, whereas ours is not. The apostolic age, you've heard it called, the the time period between Jesus and the death of the last apostle, the apostolic age, was a unique and foundational age in church history, not to be repeated. Paul's explaining this to the Ephesian church when he writes them that letter in in this second chapter. In verse 19, he writes, so that then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's telling this to the Ephesian church. But you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He's using the building metaphor here. Jesus being the cornerstone and the apostles being the foundation of this building. And their ministry will have some unique features to it that ours do not. Like these miracles. Miracles in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles served a larger purpose than they do now. They testify to the authenticity of the messenger 
and the message. Those miracles were there to serve, to prove the authenticity of who those men were and what their message was. Perhaps the best example of this that we all know from the Old Testament is when Moses was called. You remember that scene in in chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus with the burning bush, right? We all know the story of this Moses being commissioned by Yahweh to go and tell Pharaoh to declare, let my people go. That was his message. And Moses was the man. And if you remember that story, Moses kind of doubted, right? He kind of challenged God. It's really interesting and how, how kind God is to Moses because he challenges him. He says, how, how will they know? How, why would they ever listen to me? And what do, do you remember what God does? He gives Moses three signs to show Pharaoh. Remember? Throw down your staff. You'll become a snake. Ready? Put your hand inside your cloak and bring it out, and it'll be leprous. And then put it back in, and it will be clean again. And then he told him to take some water from the Nile and pour it out, and it'll become blood. Why would he ask him to do those three things? Because Moses is this foundational prophet going with a with a powerful message of let my people go. And those were to be signs. Those miracles will be signs to authenticate the man and the message. Paul was doing the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12 when he was at the, probably the end of his rope with the Corinthian church because they doubted that he was an apostle. And so he writes these, these letters to the Corinthian church and the second letter, a great portion of it, is his, him trying to prove that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says this to them, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He's going back to the same thing. Miracles validate the messenger and the message from Jesus through the death of the apostles. So, brothers and sisters, we're no longer in the apostolic age. No one here is an apostle with a capital A. Ours is not a foundational ministry. We're to build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. To use the field metaphor, they cleared the land and we are to work it. We cannot and should not expect the same power and authority over demons and diseases as they did. Now, do miracles still happen? Absolutely. Absolutely miracles still happen. But I don't think we should expect it to happen when we share the gospel every time. Perhaps you've even witnessed miracles in your own life. I mean, after all, we do serve a supernatural God, do we not? And in his wisdom... And for his own purposes, in his own time, he may perform a miracle and return things back to their natural order. Because that's what a miracle is. Returning something back to its natural order. I love what the word Aaron used over and over again in his prayer. 
restoration. That's what a miracle is. It's a restoration. Tim Keller writes, Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed to impress or coerce. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. Why, he asks. We modern people like to think of miracles as a suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration to the natural order. And you know what the greatest miracle of all that happens that we witness? It's the conversion of, of a heart back to Jesus. That's the greatest miracle of restoration back to its natural order, a relationship with the God who created them. So yes, miracles still occur. A second difference that we see here in the commissioning of the Twelve is the scope of their ministry. The scope of their ministry. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 28, we're also told by Christ to go out into all the earth, into all the nations, whereas that's our calling. Theirs was more limited in scope. Many reasons have been, been put forth for this. Some, they say, it's just mere geography. They were in Galilee, just go to Galilee. Some say they were not prepared to, to go to the Gentiles yet. They couldn't, they couldn't go to the Gentiles because they just weren't prepared to explain that. Go to the covenant people first. But there seems to be a simple biblical priority to the Jews, doesn't there? There's just this simple biblical priority. John wrote of Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus first went to his own, didn't he? Right here, go to the lost sheep of, his, of Israel first. Jesus' initial priority was to the people that he made a covenant to 2,000 years ago with Abraham. That's his priority. Not to the exclusion of, but the priority of. It seems to be the foundational pattern we see with, with the apostles too. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He's, we see this pattern all throughout Acts. Where does he go when he enters a town? He goes to the synagogue first, and he reasons with them. And when they won't listen, then he goes to the town square. Synagogue, town square. And that is the foundational priority we see here with the twelve disciples. Go first to the lost and scattered sheep of Israel. The fields here stretch as far as the border of Israel. But our commissioning is different. This is where it's similar but different. We're to go out, but we're, our, our scope is bigger, isn't it? I loved, again, Aaron's prayer. He was praying concentrically, if you were listening. The whole world. He was praying for our missionaries. Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to all creation, is Matthew's great commission. 
or Mark's Great Commission. We're called to a global field. The last difference that I see here is that we're not called to a medicant medicant ministry. Are not called to a medicant mystery. Look at verse ministry. Look at verses 9 and 10. There Jesus tells them, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. The twelve were sent out with nothing. He told them specifically, Don't take anything with you. They were solely to depend on the kindness of others. They were not to refuse support when they were given it, but they were not to prepare for it. They were not to refuse lodging when they were offered it, but they were not to plan for it. In other words, they were called to depend entirely on God. That's what Jesus, I think, is doing here, teaching them to depend entirely on him. He was giving them an intense dose of dependence. Sometimes God uses that in our lives as well, doesn't he? He gives us an intense dose of dependence. Our flesh longs for independence. So God, in his perfect love for us, gives us an intense dose of a difficulty. Made, created, ordained to cast our eyes back on him and not on ourselves. If you've been here for the 18 years of my ministry, you've heard this quote before by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I go back to it again and again. It rings in my mind again and again. I have experienced this in my life, and we have to have a category for this in our lives, brothers and sisters. He writes this, God who chose you to holiness will make you holy. And if the preaching of the word does not do so, he has other means and methods. He may strike you down with an illness. He may ruin your business. God will make you holy because he's chosen you to be holy. Brothers and sisters, that's a hard truth. But that's a category we have to have in our lives. We have to have in our theology. God wants us to be wholly dependent on him. To be clinging to him. That's how he wants us to be. And sometimes he takes drastic steps to help you see that. He ordains these things in your life so that you will turn back to him and say, I can't do this without you. I thought I could, but I can't. And that, in part, is what Jesus is doing here with the 12 disciples. Now, this isn't our calling. We're not called to to not have anything and go through life. We're not called like that. Before his death in Luke 22, as a matter of fact, he said this to his disciples. He was reminding them of this experience. He says, when I sent you out with no money or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let one who has a money bag take it 
and likewise a knapsack. You see, he was doing this right here for a specific reason, for a specific time. So that they would learn dependence on him. You can't do this without him. There are many, another way our calling is dissimilar to the 12 apostles. There's other ways, yet there are a lot of similarities too. And that's what I want us to look at, one here this week and three more next week. And the one I want to leave you with today is we go into the fields with the same tool. There are many dissimilarities that we have but there are also many similarities. And the biggest similarity we have with these 12 being sent out is that we're sent out with the same tool, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're sent out with the gospel. Look at verses, verse 7 with me in, verse 10, in chapter 10. He says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel in its simplest form. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Proclaiming that heaven is breaking through. Think of that for a moment. Heaven beginning to become a reality here on earth. What's heaven when you think of heaven? When you think of heaven, what do you think of? Perfection, a place of joy, maybe for some of you, a place of rest, a real rest. Maybe for others, it's a place of restored relationship, a place of perfect fulfillment. All true. But another way to think of heaven is this. Heaven is the state of the way everything was created to be. The state of everything the way it was created to be. That means everything. Our knowledge. Returning that back to the way it it should be. Living under God's rule with his guidelines in place. If you, if you watch the Bible Project, I think it was last week or the week before, they, they talked about it as, as putting the, the good and evil back in its right categories. Or maybe it was how work will be created, was once created to be. Not with the struggle and the thorns and the knot in your stomach, but with joy and fulfilled purpose. Or it's go back to where how childbearing was supposed to be. It was not supposed to be a painful experience. How relationships were created to be. Think of the relationships in your life, the ones that are on good terms, but there's a, there's also ones that are on bad terms. The strife, the struggle, the difficulty. That won't be there. But more importantly, no strife or struggle 
or barriers through your relationship with God, the most important relationship, that'll be gone. And we begin to see that here on earth. That's why the disciples were sent out to proclaim a returned relationship to God the way it was supposed to be. What a powerful proclamation. Think about that. Return your relationship back to God the way it was supposed to be. That's powerful. He gives them and us a powerful, powerful tool to do this with. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the tool. That is the scythe. That is the sword of the Spirit. The gospel is a powerful tool. We just heard Paul proclaim that in Romans chapter 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of salvation to those who believe. The power. The gospel is the power. Where did Paul get this idea that the gospel is the power? You know, why, why, would he, why would he even think of it in those terms? Well, certainly we can look at his ministry and, and see the changed lives in his ministry. But I think that when you and I even think of it, how powerful the gospel is, what do we think of first? What should we think of first? How it changed us. We're changed people because of the gospel. Or at least we should be. Paul, he was literally knocked off his horse, wasn't he? changed him totally from a persecutor of the church to its greatest advocate ever. From a hater to a lover, from a law alone to grace alone, from a Pharisee to a follower, and the list could go on and on and on. It's interesting to note that when he returned to Jerusalem in Acts 9 and attempted to join the disciples, you remember the welcome he got. They didn't believe that he could become a follower. They, they didn't even believe in the power of the gospel to change this man. And I think that we fall into that category from time to time too, don't we? We don't think that the gospel in its simplest form has enough power, do we? When you share with a friend or neighbor or family member that you know, Jesus, he, he lived this perfectly sinless life. He, this is what Jesus did. He lived a perfectly sinless life. And he earned, he, through that sinless life, he earned the standing before God to be a sacrificial lamb for sin. That's what, that's what his sinless life earned. And, and what he did with that is he... He went to the cross and he suffered and he, he died a substitutionary death for you taking the punishment that you deserve on himself in his body and three days later he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death and if you believe that you too will live in eternity. That's it. Do you believe that there is power there? 
Or are you like me? Or maybe others who think that those words need to be said perfectly or else they don't have power. Or if you're like me, do you think that they need to be said winsomely so that no one will take offense? Or if you're like me, you think that you have to defeat all their arguments so that the gospel will have that power. That's why we have to proclaim it as is. Because the gospel doesn't need any help. The gospel is power in and of itself. I love what Eric Raymond says of the Gospel Coalition. He writes, the gospel is wired with omnipotence. He goes on to say it's like a spiritual zip file waiting to explode. Christians are simply to be minimum wage table servers. Taking the masterpiece from the award-winning chef and bringing it to the tables. It would be just as absurd, he writes, to edit the gospel as it would be for a waiter of a five-star restaurant to sprinkle on some hot sauce or pull off some asparagus from the plate or dump some extra salt in the soup. We just need to be faithful deliverers of the goods with reverent zeal, remembering it is not us that converts, but God. And his means is the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us never forget that. And help us, Lord, to be simple minimum wage waiters taking your powerful gospel out to the people who desperately need it. In Jesus' name, amen.